Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. welcome to episode 22. I just really love that my first episode of 2022 is episode 22. It just feels really right to me. Um, I hope you had a great holiday and a great new year. Uh, real quick, top of the episode reminder to follow me on Instagram and TikTok. I'm trying to get better about posting more like mini stories on my social media between full-length episodes. Uh, so go follow me on Instagram and TikTok. It's both of those are at TGI Crime Day. Today we are talking about the Nexium cult, but before we go down that rabbit hole, I wanted to tell you about today's sponsor, Bake Cosmetics. At Bake Cosmetics, they believe that doing your makeup should be as easy as following a recipe, so they created one of the most genius things I've ever seen. Each of their makeup products comes with a recipe card that has a QR code on it, and when you scan that, it takes you to a video that shows you some of the best practices for how to apply the product and different tips and tricks for how to use it. All of the Bake Cosmetics products are cruelty-free and made in the U.S. My absolute favorite thing from Bake are their liquid lipsticks. They have a beautiful range of neutrals and statement colors, they last all day, and they're super comfy to wear. You can follow the link in this episode description and use code TAY10, that's T-A-Y-10, and get 10% off. I also will have that link in my Instagram bio and on my website so you can always easily find the discount codes that I have. Follow that link and go to bakecosmetics.com, that's B-A-Q-E, cosmetics.com, and use code TAY10. Thanks so much to Bake for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's get into today's story. It's going to be a long one, so grab yourself a cup of coffee. I hope you have a long commute or something. Um, so, Nexium was formed in 1998 and started off as a personal development company. They offered a program called ESP, which stands for Executive Success Programs. In this program, people would learn to face their fears, overcome past traumas, and learn to take control of their lives. According to the creator of Nexium, Keith Raniere, quote, Nexium is a methodology that allows people to optimize their experience and behavior. He even called it, quote, the science of joy, as if it came from science and not from some made-up BS that he came up with. Anyway, more on that later. People all over the world wanted to attend these life-changing classes that would teach them how to fix their internal problems that were holding them back from being successful. These people were paying thousands of dollars to attend these seminars to learn from the brilliant minds behind ESP. Most people who attended the courses heard about them from a friend. You kind of had to be in the know and invited by a member who was already in the group. These people would go and pay all of this money to go to these five-day super intense trainings. During these trainings, they did an activity called EMs, which stands for Exploration of Meaning. They were told that they would be very uncomfortable at first, but it's okay because that's how you grow. During EMs, a person would sit down with a coach who would essentially cause them to have an emotional breakdown over the roadblocks in their mentality. This coach would walk the attendee through the steps of their past trauma and painful memories and help them overcome it. The coach, or proctor, as Nexium called them, would break the person down and offer them a solution to their problem. At these meetings, they would refer to trauma and emotional roadblocks as limiting beliefs. And if you can overcome your limiting beliefs, you can reach your full potential. Then they would explain to this person how basically to rewrite who they were and fix their brains. Uh, it's a very condensed version of what EMs were like. Uh, they would get very intense and people would cry and feel awful. And then their coach would basically be like, poof, now you're over it. You can change. Get it together. Uh, people described this feeling as magical. People were going into these seminars and overcoming years of trauma in a five-day course. It got them feeling really excited and they felt really special to have the opportunity to work with these incredible coaches. 
Like I said, it's a very, very condensed version of people's first intro to Nexium, but it would take me hours to give you the full rundown. So people go to this five-day seminar, they would leave feeling like they overcame all of this stuff and they would want more. They would continue on. So they would attend that course and then people would decide to continue on with the trainings. And if they did, they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement and then they would begin their journey up the quote-unquote stripe path. The stripe path was Nexium's way of showing who was in what level of the organization. So if you paid to officially become a member of the organization, you got a white sash that you'd wear around your neck at all the Nexium activities. For people who loved the program and wanted to become coaches or proctors, uh, they would move up through the different levels. After the white sash, people would become basically coaches in training. They'd get a yellow sash and be like an unpaid intern. They'd have to work super, super hard, and once they put in enough time and recruited a certain amount of new members, they'd move to an orange sash and be called proctors. At this point, they'd start earning a small commission for recruitment, and I mean small, tiny amount of money for recruitment. After more and more work and more and more recruiting, they would get a green sash and be called a senior proctor, which was also a slight commission bump. And by the time someone got to a green a green sash, they'd invested around a million dollars, a million dollars of their own money into this company to get their green sash senior proctor special time. After that level, they would then go above to a blue sash and be called a counselor. And this is when they'd move into a salaried position. They'd be like an actual employee of Nexium. And then they would go to purple for senior counselors, which is a very, very hard level to reach. In case you haven't already figured it out, this is a pyramid scheme or an MLM, uh, which they liked to call it to make it more official. Again, super condensed version of that, but it gives you an overview. As you know, you can't have an organization like this without some mastermind behind it. Keeping with our colored stripe path, there was one person in Nexium who got to wear a gold sash. The gold sash was only for the prefect, Nancy Salzman, the co-founder of Nexium. Nancy Salzman was a psychiatric nurse who had experience with hypnosis and NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. NLP is described as a pseudoscientific approach to communication and personal development. The creator of NLP believed that there was a way to rewire your brain to have different reactions, and this would help people come uh, overcome phobias and traumas, etc. Sounds very much like the EMs we talked about earlier, yes? <laughs> At the top of our pyramid is Keith Raniere. A Rolling Stones article by E.J. Dixon described Keith as, quote, a self-proclaimed former child prodigy turned guru, and I just think that sums him up perfectly. Something interesting about Nexium is that they filmed everything, just like they did in the Heaven's Gate cult. So in the documentaries, you see footage of everything Keith says and does, and you just watch people stare at him with this adoration like they can't believe that they're so lucky to listen to him speak. In the 80s, Keith got involved with the MLM Amway, and someone close to Keith during this time said that he was fascinated by Amway, Scientology, and NLP. Remember, that's what Nancy was working on. So, inspired by Amway, Keith started his own MLM called Consumer Byline Inc. It was shut down a few years later because it was, in fact, a pyramid scheme. Keith was fined $40,000 and banned from, quote, promoting, offering, or granting participation in a chain distribution scheme. Clearly, he didn't take that to heart. Uh, while Consumer Byline Inc. was up and running, he met a woman named Tony Natalie, she became one of the top salespeople at CBI, and they dated for about eight years. During their time together, Tony heard a lot of Keith's crazy ramblings about what he wanted to do and how he was going to change the world. Tony started to get kind of worried about his obsessions. So when she met Nancy in 1998, Tony asked for help with Keith. And Tony's memory of this time was like this, quote, Nancy said, you're so wonderful. How can I help you? So I said, well, you can help me with my boyfriend. He had grandiose ideas and his hours were becoming erratic again. And she listened and said, oh, that's easy. I can help you. He's a sociopath. 
They met, and four days later, she came out with glazed eyes and gave me the, you don't know who he is. And I was like, wow, there goes another one. So that was Tony's account of when uh, Nancy met Keith. That's the thing about cult leaders, okay? They hypnotize people with their confidence and convince them of anything. So together, Keith and Nancy formed ESP that was later renamed Nexium. For the members of Nexium, they would call Keith Vanguard, which was a name that was from Keith's favorite arcade game, and Nancy was called Prefect. They didn't call them by the real names, just like we've seen in other cults. They started holding seminars and practicing the EMs, and they quickly gained a following that basically did all of the work for them, recruiting new members and running the Nexium centers where they held other personal development classes. Again, people would pay more and more money to go to these different classes taught by high-ranking successful members of the group. The important thing to remember here is that the people who were going to these Nexium meetings and joining the program were a lot of the time very successful, well-educated, and very often wealthy people. Um, these were actors, politicians, athletes, and Keith was always encouraging these people to invite more of their elite friends because it made the group look really good to have what was basically celebrity endorsements. So many of these people stayed in the program because Keith claimed a lot of things. The one thing that stood out and resonated with a lot of people is that he was supposedly one of the smartest people in the world. This was said about Keith a lot. He was published in the Guinness Book of World Records in 1989 for having the world's highest IQ. You'd think they would look into this a little more before publishing it, uh, but after that edition, this accomplishment was removed because it was a lie. Keith took this super random, very obscure IQ test that was given by an organization called the Mega Society. The Mega Society liked to brag about the fact that it had no peer reviews and no actual credibility because it's for people who were so smart that other organizations couldn't even pass the qualifications for the society. It literally sounds like a bunch of narcissists, which you guys know, I like to call people who have smartest man in the world syndrome, made up their own super exclusive group where they all were convinced that they were so smart that they could make up this IQ test. So they had this IQ test that was a take-home test that was called the mega test. It's supposedly the hardest IQ test ever created by, quote, the most exclusive society of geniuses in the world. Their words, not mine. Supposedly, this test was so difficult that only super geniuses, one in a million, could pass it. This test was not supervised or timed, and you could take it home and fill it out and bring it back whenever you wanted. Everything that comes out of Keith's mouth just makes me roll my eyes, and it's really difficult to read because he talks in circles. So please bear with me as I read you this quote that was what he had to say about taking this very, very special, super important IQ test. Quote, when I took the mega test, I did so because some of the problems looked interesting. At first glance, I thought 42 of the problems were trivial. The other six required a little work. I solved 43 of the problems in about two hours straight. The other five problems and proofs of some of my assertions took me about eight hours more, spread out over the next four days. I handed in my results sheet and found shortly thereafter I had copied one of my answers incorrectly, one of the easier problems on the test. I called Ron, who had missed my mistake. I scored 46 out of 48 on the mega test. I thought 10 hours was inappropriately long. I thought I was really bending the untimed nature of the test. I later learned that was considered a short time. So my quick time was likely luck of the draw, and my emotional obsessive compulsive problem-solving nature made me the perfect candidate to score high on such an exam. It's the not-so-humble-humble humble brag for me. So, Keith did such a remarkable job on this test that they let him into the Mega Society, and then he took it over. He eventually renamed it the Hoflin Research Group. <clears throat> Two of the big brags that Keith always included in his introductions was that he... Two of the big brags that Keith always included in his introductions was that he, quote, 
has an estimated problem-solving rarity of 1 in 425 million with respect to the general population. And he is, quote, one of the top three problem-solvers in the world. What he fails to mention is that these two things were based on his own study. So, when people hear about Nexium and they hear that Keith is this super genius with all these accomplishments, they think he's a scientist, they think he's a genius, they think that there are actual scientific results happening because of his ideas. And then they go to this five-day introduction to Nexium. they hear from many others, usually someone they know and trust, and they learn that they can create whatever kind of life they want because this brilliant person has the answers to all their questions about the universe. But it's like the freaking Wizard of Oz. They don't know that Keith is just this strange little man hiding behind a curtain of outlandish promises and fake science. That's how cults work. That's how people get roped in. Along with the claims of being the smartest man in the world, he also claimed to be a child prodigy of the piano, a concert pianist. He also said he held state records for the 100-yard dash. He said that at age two, he could spell the word homogenized after seeing it on a milk carton that he taught himself to read. He said that he understood quantum physics and computers by age four, which is interesting because as Frank Parlato points out on his website, The Frank Report, it would have been 1964 when Keith was four years old. Did he have a lot of access to computers at that time? Keith said that he was also the East Coast Judo champion at age 12. All of these things are according to Keith. He doesn't actually have any records to prove any of them. It's just like random lies. Again, in the 90s, when Keith started this group, they had all these ideas about how the world should look and what he wanted the world to be. He had all these claims that no one really looked into, and they just took his word for it because he said all this crap with so much conviction that people didn't see a reason not to trust him. And here's the weirdest part. The program actually was working for people. They felt like they were overcoming their fears and past traumas through EMs, and it was changing their lives. They saw themselves gaining confidence, overcoming phobias, learning and growing, and doing good in the world. And this is the bummer part. If that was it, then fine. Like, if this guy was just a bit nutty and he kind of gives off these big, grandiose ideas, but he gives good ideas and people are becoming who they want to be, that would have been fine. Like, fly your freak flag. But it was so much more than just an eccentric guy with less controversial teaching methods. But by the time it got to the scary, controlling, disgusting part, these people trusted him too much. They were in too deep to see what was happening, that they were being mentally controlled and financially scammed. Like I mentioned, Keith started Nexium with Nancy in the late 90s, and over the next 20-ish years, over 18,000 people went through the initial Nexium intro class. For the people who felt connected to the program and liked what Keith and the other coaches had to say, they moved forward into officially joining the group. For the people who really loved it, they moved through the Stripe program, like we talked about earlier, and became coaches and began recruiting new members and taking on major roles in the organization. In the HBO documentary, The Vow, there are two main people who talk about their experiences, Sarah Edmondson, who was a Canadian actress that gr joined the group in 2005, and Mark Vicente, who was a documentary filmmaker that joined Nexium in the early 2000s. In 2004, Mark made a documentary called What the Bleep Do We Know uh, that was about finding connections between quantum physics and consciousness. If I understand correctly, it kind of dove into the meaning of the universe and how we're here, why we're here, etc., so when he met Keith shortly after working on that film, Mark was super impressed with Keith's ideas and was seen as someone who was very intelligent, scientific. Keith's teachings made sense to him because Keith insisted that all of these were based in science, the science of joy and all that crap. So Mark was very quickly all in with Nexium. After going to his initial meeting and doing EMs, he felt like he had a new meaning for his life. He left the first classes feeling like he was happier than he'd ever been because he had unlocked the key to being happy. 
Keith took a liking to Mark, and they became very close friends. Keith started having Mark film everything about the group. Again, there is so much footage of the meetings and Keith's teachings, or ramblings, about how to make the world perfect. When you see the videos of people interacting with Keith, you can tell that they all truly believe that he is the smartest man in the world. They always have this awestruck look when he's speaking. And I wonder if it's truly because he had good things to say, or if it's just because of the fact that he believes everything he says so fully that he seems brilliant because he speaks with so much confidence. Keith told Mark how interesting it was to have Mark as a friend because he usually only had female friends. Red flag. You'll see what I mean in a bit. Mark was working on recruiting new members when he met Sarah Edmondson on a cruise in 2005. And when he told her about Nexium, she felt like her pleas to the universe were being answered. Sarah was an actress, but she felt like she was stuck and she wasn't getting the kind of job she wanted. She didn't know what her next steps were. And that's why she went on this cruise. It was kind of like a self-reflection, what am I doing with my life trip. You'll notice that a lot of people who joined Nexium were in places in their lives where they were looking for direction or community, friendship, etc. This is a case with a lot of the cults that I've heard about. So Sarah signed up for the five-day introduction to Nexium, and she said that the first day she was so weirded out and confused by what they were doing that she wanted to leave. But Mark told her just to stay and wait until day three. That's when people had their quote-unquote breakthroughs. She was very skeptical, but she did stay, and just like Mark told her, by the end of day five, she was hooked. She thought that the speakers and coaches were absolutely amazing. She loved all the things they taught them about finding true happiness. And over the next decade, Sarah and Mark would become very strong members in Nexium and move up the strike path. Sarah became one of the top teachers and recruited around 2,000 members to join Nexium, and eventually she opened a center in Canada. At first, things were great, but then Keith and Nancy started asking more and more from Sarah and Mark, along with some of the other top-level coaches. Every part of their lives became consumed with Nexium, from the morning meetings, to teaching classes, to coaching sessions, to teaching even more extra classes that we talked about. I believe Sarah taught an acting class, and Mark taught filmmaking classes to the members of Nexium. Then they would have more meetings with higher-up coaches, and by the time that was all done, they'd work 16 hours or more in a day. Anytime that they would talk about feeling burnt out or exhausted, Keith essentially told them to suck it up. He would say things like, everyone gets tired, don't be selfish. You might be thinking to yourself, if Keith is such a douche and making people so miserable, why wouldn't they just leave? Well, there are a lot of reasons people stay in these groups. One of them is that they look around at their peers and they see everyone else succeeding. Everyone looks like they're fine. They look happy and they look like they love being there. Second, these types of groups almost always prohibit people from speaking badly about the leaders. There's a lot of like, if you aren't doing well, it's your own fault and you need to try harder. That along with how much time and money and emotional work they've already put into this thing, it makes it really difficult for people to see leaving as an option. And trying to leave Nexium was really difficult. People at higher levels in the group would discourage people from leaving and talk them into staying all the time. And when people did leave, Keith would call them things like damaged goods and frauds and tell everyone else in the group how those people were weak and fearful. And this would further instill the idea that the people who stayed were so special and so important. So anyone who was having doubts would see the way that that former members were talked about and they'd stay and force themselves to try harder to fit in. As things progressed in Nexium, there were small subgroups that were formed within the big group. One of Keith's big teaching methods was to tell the members of Nexium that they were working to become more ethical. He used that word a lot and created this idea that they were working toward world peace through their super ethical practices. 
As part of this, he started a subgroup in 2011 specifically for the men in Nexium called the Society of Protectors, or SOP. To be part of this subgroup, uh, they had to pay an extra fee, a $1,500 collateral, and the purpose of this group was, quote, to build character and turn its members from little boys into men. <laughs> Just let that settle in for a second. There's not as much information about what exactly happened in SOP. The main focus um, of this, like the aftermath of this group, has been focused on the women who are affected by this. But from what I've seen, um, Keith would basically tell these men that it was their job to protect others. And he tried to encourage them to let go of the idea of being quote-unquote macho men and be in, more in touch with their emotions, etc. Which again, on the surface, sounds fine. Like, that's good. But then, of course, it takes a... Mark said, quote, Keith said that women had been coddled their whole life, and because they've been coddled their whole life, they had no understanding of reality whatsoever and that men are arbitrators of reality, end quote. Keith also told them that women were chronic complainers and that they used their sexuality to gain advantage in a way men couldn't. Please. Keith is disgusting. And then, the cherry on top of this whole thing was that, of course, Keith told the men that women could only have one partner because they were naturally monogamous, while it was fine for men to have more than one partner because they were naturally promiscuous. Yikes a bikes. Doesn't it seem like that's the end result of a lot of these cult leaders? Somehow they're just entitled to have sex with all the women. Of course, at the time SOP was formed, no one really knew what was going on with Keith behind closed doors because to them, he said he was being celibate. So as a counterpart to SOP, a subgroup for the women was formed called Jeunesse, that's J-N-E-S-S, which apparently doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't have a meaning. Um, a member of the group said it was, quote, a made-up word that we are defining as we define who we are, whatever that means. To join the Jeunesse subgroup, women paid $5,000 to go to an eight-day retreat. The amount of money that this group was able to convince people to spend is insane. Anyways, <laughs> the women went to this eight-day course to talk about their perceived gender roles and the way that men made them feel less than, areas in their lives they felt repressed, etc. It was supposed to be really empowering, but it was just more brainwashing because then Nancy Salzman, or Prefect as she was called, basically told them that they needed to be better wives and girlfriends and stop being so demanding of their partners. Keith loved to remind these women that being a victim was basically just a mental state they were choosing to be a victim. Again, these things were ridiculous and they sound completely stupid when you hear them from the outside, like when we're talking it in this space. But these things weren't just thrown at these members on day one. This was after years of ingrained, like, indoctrinating into this mindset. And remember, anytime someone questioned the teachings of the great and powerful Keith, they were told they were being fearful, which is selfish, and they'd be reprimanded or even called out in front of everyone for the things they were saying. This would make them feel terrible, and they'd convince themselves that the issue wasn't the group's ideas, and they'd fall in line like they thought they were supposed to. And let's not forget that a lot of this is literally just peer pressure. The members of Nexium committed their entire lives to this group. This group was their commu community. Their spouses were part of it. Their friends were all part of it. So they went with it. And then when things took a disturbing turn, they followed every insane rule and demand. I think I've used this as an example before, but I'll say it again because it makes sense. Um, have you heard the thing about how to boil a frog? If you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it jumps out immediately. But if you put a frog in cold water and slowly turn up the heat, it's cooked before it realized the temperature changed. That's how cults work. That's why people stay. Eventually, after all of these, like, first-level sneaky secrets, the women were then convinced to join a new super-secret women's-only group that was even more personal and intense than Jeunesse. 
Sarah Edmondson tells the full story in her book, Scarred, and I highly, highly recommend you read or listen to it. Um, it's so well written. She's an incredible author. Uh, anyways, so remember, at this point, Sarah was a high-ranking member of Nexium. She had been in for over a decade. She did a ton of work for the group, and this was her whole source of income. This was her entire life. She was very quick to defend anybody who talked negatively about the work that they were doing. Uh, one day, Sarah's best friend, Lauren Salzman, that she met through the group, told her that she had a very cool opportunity for her. Lauren is Nancy Salzman's daughter and was also a high-ranking member of Nexium. Sarah and Lauren were super close like sisters. Lauren officiated Sarah's wedding and she was the godmother of Sarah's son. So when Lauren approached Sarah to tell her about this new amazing thing she was doing, Sarah was super excited for the opportunity and wanted to know everything. In the beginning, Laura wouldn't tell Sarah what this group was called or what exactly was going on. She just told her that she joined this subgroup that was changing her life and helping her further her goals alongside other badass women, and she described it like a sorority of sisters helping each other become better. Lauren told Sarah that in order to learn more, she would have to provide collateral because what they were doing was so important and so special that no one else could know. Lauren told Sarah that she needed to take nude photos of herself and send them to her as collateral, and collateral was basically just blackmail. If anyone told the secrets of this group, your collateral would be released. Sarah was hesitant at first, but Lauren was like, look, it's not that big of a deal. I'm the only person that's going to see it. It's like just a precaution. Don't be a baby. So Sarah trusted her best friend, who was like her sister, and she sent these photos, and Lauren was so happy and so excited that she finally got to tell her best friend about this new exclusive group. This group was called DOS, which stands for Dominus Abquentius Abquentius Sororium. Listen, I don't speak Latin, okay? I do my best. Dominus Abquentius Sororium. According to the... I'm sorry, you guys. According to the New York Times, this means Lord over the obedient female companions. Lauren said that there are different levels to the group, and she doesn't even know who's at the top. She only knows the person right above her and the people below her. Then Lauren went on to tell Sarah that she would need to provide even more collateral to actually be in the group. Sarah started to have some doubts, but Lauren turned those doubts on her, just like they always did in Nexium, and told Sarah to stop acting like a victim and be stronger. Sarah eventually agreed to this further collateral, and this time she was told to tell her deepest, darkest secrets on camera. It had to be the type of stuff you would never want anyone to know so that you would keep the group secret. Sarah didn't really have anything like that, so Lauren just told her to make it up. Lauren filmed Sarah telling all of these awful lies about her husband, her parents, and her brother. Once that was done and Sarah provided enough collateral, Lauren filled her in a little more. DOS was just another pyramid scheme style group. Everyone had to bring in new members under themselves. And oh, one little thing, not a big deal. We call it a master-slave relationship. Which again, Sarah was like, whoa, dude, hit the brakes. What are you talking about? Lauren downplayed this whole thing and assured her it's not as weird as it sounded. She should just think of Lauren as her master, but it's fine because really it's like a mentor or a coach. She's not literally her master. Sarah really looked up to Lauren and was excited at the opportunity to have her as a mentor. So she was like, okay, that's kind of weird, but I'll just do it. Lauren explained that Sarah had five other slaves in her pod with her. And once she got to a certain level, Sarah could have her own slaves. Yikes of yikes. She said that each slave was expected to help their master with a few hours of service each week. You know, just help them work on being more selfless and kind, please. Then Lauren explained that for this whole exercise to really work, Sarah had to follow all the rules, including sending texts throughout the day asking if she could do certain things. Master, may I eat breakfast? Master, may I take a shower? Master, may I go to sleep? 
I'm not exaggerating. They literally had to do these things. And before anyone gets upset, I am not shaming anybody because if it's a consensual thing, it's fine. But this is not consensual. This is weird. There was also another part of the master-slave relationship where they had to do a thing called readiness drills. The master would text her slave at any time, day or night, and the slave had 60 seconds to reply or there would be punishments, such as not being allowed to sleep, having to skip meals, or having their collateral released. If you were ever going to be in a situation where you wouldn't have cell phone service, you had to text your master to let her know you were quote-unquote going dark. After six weeks of these non-stop texts and check-ins, Lauren told Sarah it was finally time to come to an official initiation with her other quote-unquote sisters. Sarah went to see Lauren in Albany and noticed that in just six weeks, her best friend looked like a different person. Lauren bragged about getting down to her goal weight of 106 pounds. She lost 20 pounds in six weeks, all quote-unquote thanks to her master's help. Not good. Not okay. We'll talk more about this in a second. Um, So it's initiation time. Sarah was taken into a room, and Lauren told her to undress and put on a blindfold. Once again, Sarah was super weirded out, and Lauren told her she was being a control freak, and she needed to stop being so self-conscious and get over her body issues if she really wanted to be part of this group that was going to help her reach her goals. Sarah decided she was going to go for it, so she undressed, she put on her blindfold, and then she was led down into the living room with her five other quote-unquote sisters. They all took off their blindfolds, and Sarah recognized some of the other women from Nexium, and suddenly she felt more comfortable. These women were her friends, and if they were all in this together and they weren't weirded out, then it must be fine, right? So Lauren goes on to tell them all how proud she is and how excited she is to have them in her circle, blah, 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 like it's freaking Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and they're all just here to support each other and lift each other up as women and be badasses together or whatever. Then she dropped another bomb. As part of your initiation, you'll all be getting matching tattoos. Again, there are some hesitations, but Lauren painted it as this beautiful thing of how committed they all are and that they're forming this bond. They're fully committed to becoming better women and changing the world. The tattoo they would be getting was just a bunch of lines that represented the four elements, and Lauren promised it would be really small and really pretty. So all the women agreed to the tattoo. They were blindfolded again and driven to another secret location. When they got to the secret location, they realized that it was Allison Mack's house. Allison Mack was another high-ranking member of Nexium. She was an actress most well-known for her role in Smallville. Uh, she joined the cult. I mean, she joined the Nexium group. <laughs> Jumping ahead. She joined the Nexium group when she felt stuck in her acting career. She was all about Nexium and felt like she was doing a ton of special work and helping others by bringing them into the group. According to Allison, she loved being part of DOS because it, quote, was all about women coming together and pledging to one another a full-time commitment to become our most powerful and embodied selves by pushing our greatest fears, by exposing our greatest vulnerabilities, by knowing that we could stand with each other no matter what, by holding our word, by overcoming pain, end quote. When Sarah and Lauren's other slaves were brought to Allison's house for this quote-unquote tattoo, they were greeted by a doctor who surprised them and was not there to give them a tattoo, but she used a cauterizing gun to brand them with this quote-unquote special symbol of sisterhood. By the time these women realized what was going on, their clothing had been taken away along with their cell phones. And even if they did say no to this branding, their quote-unquote master had all this collateral to use against them. And remember, this is awful deep dark secrets that would ruin their lives if it got out. In an article by Kayla Cobb for Decider.com, she said, quote, that's how Nexium led to branding. It wasn't because a group of unhinged people one day decided to scar their bodies. It happened because a group of people were carefully groomed, lied to, and manipulated until they felt as if getting a brand and becoming someone's slave felt like the safest course of action, end quote. So, one by one, 
Each of these women climbed naked onto a table and was held down by their other sister slaves and given a brand that was way down their hip line, close to their vaginas. Sarah remembered these women screaming and sobbing through the branding, which took about 30 minutes for each woman. At one point, Sarah got really freaked out and upset, and Lauren told her basically, get it together and be the strong one, set an example. Sarah said Lauren made her feel ridiculous for being so scared, so she got on the table and said that she basically just disassociated and held as still as possible so that it would be over quicker. Um, Something that she talks about in her book uh, is that she basically kind of blacked out and doesn't remember everything that happened, but other members of this group said that they remembered that basically Lauren, their quote-unquote master, made them ask to be brand just like she, like, had them ask, master, may I have breakfast? Master, may I do this or that? They said that she had them say, master, may I please be branded, which is disgusting because it makes it seem as if they're fine with it and it's their idea. Okay, moving on. Sarah said that after she completed getting the brand, she had this sense of pride and she was like, so proud of herself and felt like a badass for doing something that was so awful and so hard, especially because Lauren was giving her all of this praise along with the other women who were so impressed with how well she held it together. And in that moment, they did all feel deeply bonded and deeply connected Uh, They weren't allowed to show anyone their brands or tell them that they got them. I still don't know how they thought that would stay secret from their spouses, but that was the rule. It had to stay secret. So while this was all supposed to remain a secret, of course, rumors were circulating because there were for sure some members of Nexium who were approached for DOS who didn't get as far into it and were completely weirded out by the master-slave thing. Not only were there rumors, but there were members who started noticing changes in some of the women in the group especially the fact that a lot of the women had started drastically losing weight, just like Lauren Salzman. One of the first people to start calling attention to this uh, was Mark's wife, Bonnie Peace, who joined Nexium while she was also trying to figure out her acting career. I told you a lot of these people in the group had these different connections to Hollywood and people with lots of money and good connections. Anyway, so Bonnie started to get really uncomfortable with some of the things that she was hearing about this secret society of women, along with pointing out how weird Keith was. Just like everyone else, at first, she was so taken with Keith's viewpoints and thought that the group was helping her, so she made excuses for his odd behaviors. But as she watched some of her closest friends become more closed off, secretive, and again, these women start losing weight and becoming obsessed with counting calories, she started asking questions. One of the things Bonnie could not rationalize was how touchy-feely Keith was, especially with the women in the group. He was constantly kissing people on the mouth like it was casual and normal, and he was always doing, like, the massaging the shoulders or putting an arm around them when they were talking or talking really close to their faces. Little things that are really uncomfortable for some people that were excused because, like, it's just part of Keith's personality. It's just how he is. Finally, Bonnie felt so trapped and so freaked out by this control that she realized Keith had over her life that she took her fears to Mark. And when Bonnie first started pointing out all these things to Mark, he was really quick to defend Keith. In the documentary The Vow, Mark is very upfront about the fact that he was ready to defend Keith to the ends of the earth. At first, Bonnie was going to try and just quietly leave, because, but that became harder and harder as Keith tried to basically break up their marriage. He was telling Mark that Bonnie was weak, and his concern over her leaving was standing in the way of his own success in Nexium. Luckily, Mark finally listened to what Bonnie had to say, and everything started to unravel for him. Uh, Mark kind of did this, like, double agent thing. He would still continue on like everything was fine while trying to get more information about Keith and Doss. And one day he decided to reach out to Sarah and ask her what was going on. Around the same time, it was in about 2017, Sarah was going through her own spiral of questioning this life that she built with Nexium. One day when Sarah called 
or when Mark called Sarah and kind of discreetly asked her what was going on in this women's only group, Sarah was really worried about giving him too much information because she didn't know where Mark was coming from or where he stood with everything. Finally, he told her that he and Bonnie were trying to get out of the group. They were really suspicious and freaked out. And he told Sarah that he heard there were women being branded. And Sarah finally opened it up, opened up to him and confessed everything. When Sarah confirmed all of this, he lost it. Sarah and her husband, Anthony, that everyone calls Nippy, along with Bonnie and Mark, decided it was time for them to start taking Nexium down. Sarah began calling everyone she could to tell them what was going on inside Nexium. She was telling women who were being recruited into DOS not to give any collateral, and she was trying to get to the bottom of who the hell was in charge of all this. Up until this point, Sarah believed Lauren when she told her that Keith had nothing to do with DOS. Lauren said that Keith just gave them permission to do it, but he didn't know anything. He didn't know about the branding. He didn't know about the master-slave thing. He was clueless to what they were doing and had no idea. Uh, it wasn't until Sarah started talking to a formal member and showed her the brand that they put together the fact that the brand wasn't ancient symbols representing the elements. And when you flipped the symbol on its side, it made the initials KR and AM for Keith Raniere and Allison Mack. As everything started to fall apart, more women were opening up to Sarah and telling her what was going on in their own master-slave relationships. They found out that there were women who were being told by their masters, I hate using that word, but I don't know what else to call them, um, they were being given specific challenges that were supposedly to help them learn and grow and overcome their issues. It was all character building, but for what? Most of these women were put on insane diets and only allowed to eat a very small amount of food every day because Keith liked the women to be very, very thin. These specific women had to text their master and ask if they could have a specific amount of calories along with a picture of what they wanted to eat. Multiple women were told that they needed to seduce Keith and get photo proof that they had slept with him. That's when Sarah got this full picture that over the years, there had been between 15 and people that Keith was sleeping with, even though he told everyone that he was celibate. There was one woman who was one of Keith's partners that left the group and went into hiding because she was pregnant with Keith's child. She also learned that Lauren had been sleeping with Keith for years and he kept telling her that they would have a child eventually. Sarah and Mark were completely shocked when they found out that Keith was having sex with all of these women. And that's when they put it all together that Allison Mack was the head of DOS and she was the one helping Keith coerce all these women into having sex with him and the brand was actually her idea. Part of me feels really awful for Allison Mack because she was also brainwashed and I think had been broken down and trained to become this Keith Raniere fangirl. But I also think it's disgusting that she went along with it and encouraged Keith's behavior and then targeted women who trusted her, who thought she was their friend and mentor, and coerced them into having sex with this awful human being. So after talking to many, many of these women who were victims to Keith's insanity, Sarah and Mark finally felt like they had enough information to go to the FBI and the Department of Victim Services to get Nexium shut down. In 2017, Sarah received a cease and desist from Nexium for talking to the medium about the cult. Keith was constantly in these legal battles because this was not the first time they'd been accused of being a cult. He had plenty of members who had plenty of money to fund these lawsuits, including Claire and Sarah Bronfman, who are heiresses to the Seagram's fortune. They helped Keith with money many, many times, much to the annoyance of their billionaire father who tried to get people to see that Nexium was a cult. Sarah and Mark decided the best thing they could do was get the media involved, and they started working with a reporter at the New York Times. Barry Meyer listened to their story and started interviewing other members of Nexium. Most of them stayed anonymous, and he put together this article. And in the documentary, there's a part where they basically find out from Barry that the New York Times was going to hold the article. They weren't going to publish it yet because they didn't feel like it was that urgent of a story. 
if I understand correctly, which if that's the case, that's ridiculous. He basically told them he didn't know if or when it would be published. How is a group of women being branded and used for sex slavery not breaking news? In October of 2017, the Me Too movement started really taking off and thousands of women were tweeting their stories using hashtag Me Too. This was in the midst of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein coming out, and if you don't remember or if you're not familiar, the Me Too movement um, is stated as, quote, to empower sexually assaulted individuals through empathy and solidarity through strength in numbers, especially young and vulnerable women, by visibly demonstrating how many have survived sexual assault and harassment, especially in the workplace, end quote. On October 2017th, I mean, on October 17th, 2017, the New York Times article was finally published and it blew up. Everything was finally out in the open, and once the FBI and local authorities started really investigating Nexium, suddenly, Keith and his inner circle of members were nowhere to be found. It became sort of a manhunt, and when an arrest warrant was put out for Keith in early 2018, they knew that he needed to find him before he, like, went off the grid. At first, it was really hard for authorities to figure out where Keith was because he used a lot of encrypted emails, and he had people who were very faithful to him who wouldn't say where he was and just pretended to know nothing. I couldn't find this clip again, but I could have sworn in the documentary, The Vow, they said that one of the people who was with Keith posted something on Instagram that had a geotag attached to it, and that's how it became known that Keith was in Mexico. Um, Keith had a number of faithful followers in Mexico, so it was a very easy place for him to hide. However, on March 25th, 2018, Keith was found at a $10,000 per week villa, of course, paid for by the Nexium members. Uh, he was there with a group of seven women, including Allison Mack, Lauren Salzman, and Nikki Klein. When authorities showed up to arrest Keith, his followers tried to protect and defend him while he literally cowered in a closet like a scared child. A reporter for the Albany Times Union, Robert Gavin, said, quote, The whole arrest scene is really an example of everything we know about Keith Raniere because here he is, this renunciate, and where is he? He's in a villa. What is he doing? Is he being brave? Is he this leader? No, he's hiding in a closet, end quote, which I just love that quote because Keith is a little whiny baby who let everyone else fight his battles. After Keith was taken into custody, Lauren, Allie, and Nikki chased after the police cars in their own car. Later, Lauren Salzman said that when authorities arrived, they had been about to start a quote-unquote recommitment ceremony, which was actually just an orgy where all the women needed to quote-unquote do something nice for Keith. He's garbage. Keith was extradited to Texas and held without bail because obviously he was a flight risk. And in a letter to the U.S. magistrate judge on the following day, federal prosecutors said that Ranieri quote, has access to vast resources, and poses a significant risk of flight. In addition, his long-standing history of systemically exploiting women through coercive practices for his own financial and sexual benefit demonstrates that, if released, he would pose a danger to the community, end quote. 100%. I'm so glad they didn't give him the option of posting bail because that would have been a nightmare. So, Keith was being charged with multiple different things. Uh, eventually, other members, including Allison Mack, Lauren Salzman, Nancy Salzman, and Claire Bron Bronfman um, were also charged. The trials and sentencings took a while because they got arrested right before COVID hit, so that slowed things down. But as of now, in January of 2022, here are the charges that these people were faced with. Starting with Claire Bronfin. Remember, she is one of the heirs to the Seagram's fortune. Claire was charged with multiple things, including racketeering, identity theft, and money laundering. She pled guilty to conspiracy to conceal and harbor illegal aliens for financial gain, as well as fraudulent use of identification. She took a plea deal so that she didn't go to trial. If she had gone to trial, she could have faced up to 25 years in prison. In August of 2020, Claire wrote a letter to the judge saying, quote, Many people, including most of my own family, believe I should disavow Keith and Nexium, 
and that I have not is hard for them to understand or accept. However, for me, Nexium and Keith greatly changed my life for the better. End quote. Really? You just pled guilty to all of these things and you're saying that you're a better be- person because of this. Yikes. She was sentenced to six years and nine months after multiple Nexium members testified against her. Her attorneys put out a statement saying, quote, she intends to mount a vigorous and immediate appeal. Okay. <laughs> Allison Mack was charged with racketeering conspiracy, sex trafficking, and forced labor conspiracy. She pled guilty, uh, but only to the least controversial of those things, racketeering and racketeering conspiracy, to keep herself out of a trial. It really doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Somehow, Allison got off with only three years in prison, followed by three years of supervised release and a fine of $20,000, which, I'm sorry, I think is a bit ridiculous, seeing as she was basically second in command over DOS. She was the one who came up with the branding, and these women literally have their initials branded on themselves. But okay. She put out a former apology letter, taking responsibility for some of her participation, And at least she, unlike other members, said she regretted the mistakes that she made and was sorry to the women she involved. Nancy Salzman was the first to plead guilty. She was accused of identity theft, alterations of recordings, and attempts at surveillance. Nancy pled guilty to these charges, including trying to get important passwords of the quote-unquote enemies of Nexium to keep tabs on what they were doing to try to take down Nexium. She also pled guilty to destroying and illegally editing clips of Keith's teachings to take out incriminating evidence. In court, she said, quote, I accept that some of the things I did were not just wrong, but sometimes criminal. I justified them by saying what we were doing was for the greater good. I am deeply sorry for the trouble I caused my daughter and the pain I caused my parents. I still can't, I still believe that some of what we did was good, end quote. Yeah, okay. <laughs> in September 2021, Nancy was sentenced to 42 months in prison and a $150,000 fine. In her final sentencing, Nancy said that she was, um, quote unquote, horrified and ashamed that I promoted him, and she called him a narcissistic sociopath. Finally, some truth. Nancy's daughter, Lauren, who was also at the top of DOS with Allison Mack, was accused of forced labor, human trafficking, and extortion. If I understand correctly, she basically took a plea deal and said that she would tell everything against Keith. Uh, Lauren confessed to having kept a woman captive for nearly two years, threatening to have her deported to Mexico unless she obeyed the orders of Keith and the other members. It seems like Lauren was one of the only inner circle to fully accept what they'd been doing was awful, and she didn't try to cover her own ass, at least in the end. I'm sure at first she was trying to defend Nexium like the others, but eventually Lauren was the only one of Keith's co-defendants to testify against him. Lauren's testimony was so important because it allowed them to get the truth about Keith and press charges accordingly. In an apology letter, she said, quote, I do not have enough tears for how deeply sad, ashamed, and regretful I am about my time with Keith Ranieri and my participation in his wrongful initiatives. I can't even begin to imagine the pain, feelings of betrayal, feelings of violation, and lasting emotional trauma that these victims have experienced. There was nothing empowering about this group. There was pain, deceit, there was humiliation, and control. End quote. Because of her testimony, Lauren avo- avoided jail time completely, which I kind of don't know how to feel about. On the one hand, I understand that she was also brainwashed and was a victim of Keith's insanity, but she also literally kept a woman locked in a basement for two years and convinced a bunch of women to be sex slaves to Keith. So there's that. Let me know your opinions. Uh, Okay. And of course, the evil mastermind behind all of this, Keith Ranieri, was charged with racketeering and racketeering conspiracy, sex trafficking, attempted sex trafficking, sex trafficking conspiracy, forced labor conspiracy, and wired fraud conspiracy. He was the only one arrested in relation to Nexium to not plead guilty and maintain his innocence throughout the entire trial. Because he sucks. (laughs) Seriously, dude, you're going to sit there and let everyone take responsibility for everything you convinced them to participate in? 
I feel bad for every single judge, juror, lawyer, etc. who had to sit there and listen to him spew absolute garbage about how he did nothing wrong. It's disgusting. Prosecutors were looking for a life sentence, while Keith's defense team were arguing that he should only get 15 years in prison. What a nightmare. During Keith's trial in 2020, many of the former members told ne uh, of Nexium told their stories and shared horrific events that they went through because of Keith. The jury deliberated for five hours, and Keith was sentenced to 120 years in prison, which I always love when they do that instead of just saying life in prison when they say 120 years. It's so much more powerful. Of course, Keith thinks this is ridiculous, and he's been trying to get appeals and whatever, but I don't think that will ever happen. I hope. He's a piece of crap. He got what he deserved, and he completely was unapologetic and brought up his philosophy on how the victims were choosing to be victims, and he shouldn't even be there because it was their decision to be upset. He sucks. It's so awful. Um, okay, moving on. Oh, he just sucks so much. It makes me insane. In July of 2021, Keith got a major shock when he found himself in court yet again. Around 100 former Nexium members were seeking financial rep retribution, which they more than deserve. Included in that were also some of his victims who wanted their collateral videos and photos back, to which Keith said, quote, I never handled the collateral. I knew nothing about it. I don't have it. I don't know who the victims are. I don't know what they're asking. Yeah, right. He attended his trial virtually from prison, and he was said to be doodling on paper and smirking throughout the whole thing. Then came time for Keith to learn the payments he would be making, and that wiped the stupid smile off of his disgusting face. In all, Keith has to pay out almost $3.5 to the victims whose lives he ruined. I wish there was more that could be done to help his victims, but that's a start. May he rot in prison. Now that the right people are behind bars and cannot continue to hurt anyone else, I really hope that the victims of this case feel some sense of peace. And to the main whistleblowers, Sarah Edmondson, her husband Anthony, Mark Vizente, his wife Bonnie, these incredible, badass humans along with everyone else who suffered because of this horrible, horrible organization, I hope they are healing. Because of the bravery that they showed, they took down a huge cult that would have kept growing and kept hurting people more and more. I barely scratched the surface on this case. Um... There are so many stories to be told, and there is so much good information out there. I hope you'll take the time to watch the documentaries and read Sarah's book, uh, because the survivors of Nexium are all incredible. I feel like I know them so well after watching these documentaries and, and reading their books and all the things. I listened to a recent episode of the Mormon Stories podcast that Sarah and her husband Nippy were on. That's actually why I chose to do this case, because Sarah is just such a badass, and listening to her story was incredible. Anyway, Sarah had her brand removed recently, and she is doing a, cr a ton of incredible work for cult survivors. Uh, she makes me cry because she's so brave and so cool. Again, highly, highly recommend at least listening to that episode of Mormon Stories and listen to Sarah's audiobook, Scarred. Uh, I couldn't tell every single story that's included in those, but they're all definitely worth listening to. Okay, we've come to the end. Thank you for being here through this very long episode. Happy New Year. I hope the goal at the top of your 2022 list is to be a little kinder to yourself and the people around you. As always, thank you for supporting this podcast. I will talk to you soon. Bye.